Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. For Codish, this is Robert Blumen. I'm a DevOps engineer at Salesforce. I have with me today Ian Varley. Ian is a principal software architect at Salesforce with over 20 years experience in software development. Ian and I will be talking about multi-tenancy. Ian has written about this topic for the Salesforce engineering blog as part of a series called The Architecture Files. Ian, welcome to Codish. Thank you, Robert. I am really happy to be here. We're going to talk about multi-tenancy. Let's start off with a definition. What is multi-tenancy? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, the way I like to describe it is I think everybody understands sort of naively that software is all multi-user, like that there's you know lots of different people using the same software at the same time on the web. If you, if you and I are both using Gmail, for example, then... You know, there's not a separate Gmail program running for you than there is for me. Uh, and so most, most software you interact with is multi-user. Uh, multi-tenancy takes that kind of to one more level, which is to say uh, that there are groups of users. And these groups might share information amongst themselves, uh, but the group is completely isolated from other groups. So you can think about it almost as a group mode for multi-user software. Um, that's, I think, the simplest way to, to sort of describe what we mean from a software perspective about what multi-tenancy is. When you talk about multi-tenancy, is the tenant one of these groups? Exactly right. The tenant is the group, um, and that can take a lot of different forms. Um, but for a company like Salesforce, um, we kind of have a uh, the, the, the brand of multi-tenancy that we use has uh, each paying customer, say, of Salesforce uh, what they're paying for is a tenant and a bunch of individual user accounts within that tenant. Um, and so that's their sort of private area of data. So it, now that sometimes maps to a single company. That's sort of the most obvious case. Uh, but there are bigger, more complex cases where one company um, who is a customer of Salesforce might end up actually having you know, three or four or even more independent tenants because for some reason they need to keep groups of users separate from each other for, say, compliance reasons or international law or something like that. Uh, so it doesn't always map exactly to a legal entity. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I mean when I say tenant. That's the group. To give some more concrete idea of what we could be talking about, how many users might a tenant have in a large enterprise software multi-tenant system? Yeah, I don't think there's any any particular right answer to that. I mean, uh, we certainly have very small tenants that have one, two, three, four users, you know, uh, small independent companies. Um, we probably also have uh, individual tenants that number in tens of thousands of user accounts within a single tenant. Um, and so it really, uh, there's no inherent maximum at that point. It's just sort of whatever your software can handle, I suppose. You bring up Gmail as an example of a multi-user system. I believe when I use it as an individual, it is multi-user. There is the corporate Gmail client where everyone at Salesforce is on Gmail and we can calendar each other. And if you try to send a document to somebody outside of Salesforce, it'll say, hey, you're sending this to someone outside of your org. Mm -hmm. 
Would be fair to say that corporate Gmail or corporate G Suite is really a multi-tenant system? Yeah, I think that is fair. Um, I, I think the, the boundaries are probably a little bit more porous there. You can choose to share data with people outside of your organization uh, in, in the corporate Gmail world. Um, whereas I think for a, a system like Salesforce, I guess I should mention like tenancy is a very basic concept within, within the Salesforce systems. And so there really aren't mechanisms in place. And this is very, very conscious. This is by design. Uh, there really aren't mechanisms in place that allow you to directly share information from one tenant to another. Um, and, and that's when we think about multi-tenancy, there's like a small set of principles that we, that we think about in terms of why we do it and what we, uh, what we want to get out of it. And, and the first kind of the most important principle of multi-tenancy, as I think in, it, it would be in a multi, just any multi-user system is the principle of isolation, right? You really don't, you want to want to make sure it's very, very difficult, if not downright impossible, uh, for, people to accidentally or with bad intention move data across the boundaries of tenants, right? So if, if you know, you think about single user Gmail as a, as a system, if it were, you know, if there were a special API call you could make that would go get my email, that would be a big security hole, right? <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, so likewise in a multi-tenant system, uh, we want to make it difficult for, or, you know, difficult or impossible for bad actors to get at the wrong tenant's data, for a tenant to accidentally get at another tenant's data. And perhaps more importantly, we want to make it difficult for our engineering team to make mistakes um, of one type or another that accidentally do the same thing. In other words, it shouldn't really be possible for an engineer to check in a bug that all of a sudden has a different tenant reading my tenant's data. Um, and when that happens, that's very, very serious. So the, the entire engineering um, organization of the system is really based around that as a, as a first principle. This concept of isolation, you've been talking about how to ensure that there are boundaries between tenants, but users within a tenant can share information. I do want to drill down into that more, but I think it would make sense to talk about the main architecture approaches to multi-tenancy first, yep. and then come back and say, how do we implement isolation? You describe in your blog post there are two main approaches to multi-tenancy. What are they? Um, well, the first one uh, is what you might get sort of by default if you use Heroku or you know any kind of infrastructure as a service uh, type account, which is you get uh, down to the infrastructure level, you get separate resources. Right. You get separate containers or VMs or whatever, you, however you want to implement it uh, per per tenant. So uh, if you have one tenant, there's going to be a set of VMs over here for that tenant and a set of VMs over here for this tenant and never the two shall meet. That is a you know very straightforward way to do multi-tenancy um, where you're sort of saying existing containers of one, and I don't necessarily mean like Docker containers, but existing containers of one type or another uh, provide that boundary for you. Um, so that's what you might call like a... a a separate resource strategy. The other, which is the way that the, the Salesforce architecture works, is what you might call a shared resource strategy. And in a shared resource strategy, you are actually sharing at the infrastructure level and even at the process and software level, you're sharing all of the all of the resources uh, across multiple tenants. So, for example, in the world of Salesforce, uh, you're, you're going to have one big database, one big relational database that is actually serving and storing data for thousands and thousands of different tenants simultaneously. And it keeps those separated uh, logically rather than sort of at a physical infrastructure layer, uh, by which I mean 
if there's a table in the system, let's say there's a table for accounts in the system, there's gonna be a column on that table, which is the tenant identifier, which for, in, in the, in the uh, Salesforce systems, we call the organization ID. And so that organization ID is uh, just a field on the table and literally every query in the system uh, is forced to say, okay, I always have to have a where clause that limits to just a single organization, a single tenant. Uh, in every part of my software. And so, you know, in every single line of code throughout the entire system, there's this awareness that one of the things in your current context is which tenant are you part of? Um, and it goes all the way down to, you know, queries to the database all the way through all the processes uh, and user interactions and everything. So so those are fairly diametrically opposed <laughs> um, approaches to, to multi-tenancy, of course. If I understand then, the one approach is you get your own stuff and the stuff is maybe running even on completely separate servers. So it's inherently pretty well isolated versus uh, everything is on this potentially the same big server and we have to do some stuff in the software to ensure that every request for any kind of information has to be scoped down to one org ID. Yep, exactly. Great. So at Salesforce, we mostly use a second approach. Why is that? So really, the reason ultimately is about utilization and cost, right? So if we're running a, a single multi-tenant service rather than like lots of small uh, single-tenant services, we're making better use of the underlying uh, software or the underlying hardware um, that we are ultimately paying for, right? So um, this is particularly important for resources that you're not using all the time. So if you're talking about ephemeral compute, you can scale that up and scale that down pretty easily, right? You can just uh, even, you know, all the way to using like a serverless approach where somebody else worries about scaling that up and down for you. Um, but from a storage perspective, if you are running databases and things like that, um, it's, it's fairly important that all of the individual tenants, when they're not being used, which is a lot of the time, if you've got, you know, a, a small company um, you know, a few people, they're not hitting their CRM system every second of the day. And so if you've got separate resources, you know, actually physically spun up for all of those, it gets really expensive really fast. Um, and so, you know, just the, the impact of that on, uh, you know, on the cost structure of the service, but then, I mean, think about also just even on the environment and things like that, there's just a ton of waste there. Um, so, so that's why for, um, for the majority of services that Salesforce runs, uh, that's why we run it in that sort of shared resource mode. Now, of course, uh, it takes a lot more work to build the software in such a way that it's going to work. But then once you've done that, you kind of have that as, as an option. Is it also the case that from an ops standpoint, it's easier to manage one really big database than, say, 5,000 small databases that would all need to be backed up and query planned and tuned yeah, for sure. If you're if you're thinking about that as individual human work, then yes, for sure. Um, of course, when you get to doing things at scale, uh, that that kind of reverses a little bit, to be honest. Because um, if you're going to be running databases at scale, you need to get to a point where all of that is is very very automated. So, uh, if you think about Heroku as as an example of this, right? Of course, Heroku's uh, data services like Postgres and things like that, um, you know, that's that is tractable at that scale with you know millions and millions of databases running because it's literally all automated, right? There is no human that's sitting there pressing buttons and doing all those things. That's not really a compelling reason to go one way or the other. You have to get to a level that match a level of automation that matches your scale uh, in either case. And and so certainly in in CRM Core, 
uh, with the level of complexity of the relational databases that we run and the scale of them, there is a fair amount to do, <laughs> just in terms of operational work uh, that's that's difficult to automate. Uh, but um, at this point, you know, we've got a lot of automation in there just so that we can run at the scale that we run at. So we've been talking about as if there is one great big relational database and all the tenants are in it. But uh, databases, relational databases can only scale out so much. How does this approach horizontally scale when you have a very large number of customers as we do at Salesforce? Yeah, um, the way that, that Salesforce has approached that over over the years is to uh, is to take just a basic sharding approach. You know, because of the fact that it's a multi-tenant architecture, uh, we can uh, we can very cleanly separate tenants from each other. Which means that if a single instance of a database is getting too large, we can slice it in half and say, all right, fifty percent of the tenants go over here, and fifty percent of the tenants go over there. Um, and that's more or less been the way that the company has scaled since the beginning. Um, you know, for the first few years, I think there really was just one. Uh, one big database, uh, but it was it was pretty quickly clear that that was that was going to have its limits, and so they started sharding that into more and more. They're called we we call them instances, and so there are um, a whole bunch of instances of Salesforce now that are you know identical from a software perspective, identical more or less from a hardware perspective, um, and then just have different subsets of tenants on them. You could envision a scenario where the workload on a particular instance, it's outgrowing the instance. You have to split it into two shards. What are some of the complexities around doing that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the interesting, um, that's one of the principles actually that we think about uh, when we think about multi-tenancy, which is that if, uh, if you're going to run an architecture like this, it's really important that moving a tenant from one place to another can't be a difficult thing to do. It can't require a whole lot of human intervention. It has to be easy. It has to be uh, you know, there, it can't involve uh, downtime or a whole lot of downtime, um, and it needs to be very uh, reliable. So, uh, you know, scalability is one of the angles where you might want to do that, right? Where you say, oh, well, this tenant or this group of tenants is has been sort of organically growing, and the the hardware that they're hosted on is is not good enough anymore, and we need to move them around. Uh, that's that's a totally valid reason. There are also other reasons why moving individual tenants has to be kind of a first-class operation, has to be easy. Uh, one of which is just basic hardware refresh. Like if you're running in data centers, um, then you know you you have machines that are on lease. Those leases come up uh, for expiration every so often, and you just need to refresh them, right? You need to move to new hardware. Uh, so you you know in, for that reason you need to be able to migrate large groups of tenants uh, together, um, and then there's actually a, a, another potentially even sneakier uh, reason why we need to move tenants around, uh, which is what, what I like to talk about as product interaction latency. So um, you know let's say you're a customer and you're in Japan, um, it and you're you know running against a an instance that is based on the east coast of the US you're going to have pretty pretty poor latency uh, on a request by request basis right uh, every time you you do that it's traveling across the world so for that reason we spin up physical resources in lots of different geographic regions um, and so we might want to say oh actually let's move your tenant closer to where they are uh, to where the users are actually accessing us from. And that can be kind of complicated. I mean, you might say, why not just put it near them in the first place? But it's a it's a constantly changing picture. Like where we have data centers is always changing. Uh, where our customers have users is always changing. There's mergers and acquisitions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so for that reason, it's really important that, that just picking up a tenant and moving it somewhere else has to be just a first-class operation. With a system that has customers on it and 
we're in a lot of different time zones. You have people doing reads and writes. You offer some kind of consistency model. You have messaging or events coming into a system. Is it necessary for Salesforce's use cases to be able to migrate a tenant across instances without the tenant seeing any downtime or weird consistency violations? Well, the latter, 100%. If we have weird consistency violations, that violates a lot of the basic trust that our customers have in our product. It's a pretty complex uh, product or set of products uh, that has very um, very nuanced interaction patterns and people build really complicated stuff on that's very mission critical. Uh, and so if things are broken from a consistency perspective, like you wrote these three records, but now only two of them are around, then that's a big problem, right? Um, and so that's kind of the that's a that's a first class concern for us is is the the correctness and consistency of the data. Um, and then as uh, you know, for our customers, of course, especially some of the larger customers, as you get in in particular, like in the world of um, of the of service, like we have a product called Service Cloud where you can run call centers and things like that. And as we get into bigger and bigger customers, we're increasingly seeing customers that absolutely need twenty four seven. And so we're certainly striving for getting to a point where moving a tenant is a zero time operation. Um, we have also, um, you know, because of the complexity of the product, kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit in terms of what we're allowing our users to do, just in terms of how complex operations can be. Um, and so it's really difficult to have both of those things, right? It's really difficult to have a complex relational database that's updatable in real time and, you know, uh, can have as, uh, extremely complex transactions on top and to say, by the way, I'm going to be able to, you know, without any downtime, uh, atomically and transactionally move this to a physically different geographical location uh, when, you know, the data in question could be petabytes of data. Um, just you, you put all those factors together and, and you've sort of got a recipe for impossibility. And there's interesting things we're doing, tons of interesting things we're doing to kind of reduce that window of how much downtime do you really need to, to take. So, for example... Uh, we've got uh, a, a tenant migration process that works in these two phases where first it identifies data that is that is uh, not changing um, and it moves that in bulk without the tenant being offline and simultaneously keeps a record of what changes they are making. And then there's a second phase uh, when we say, okay, now take the tenant offline for as brief a time as possible, catch up all those most recent changes and then you know turn them back on in the new location. So there's there's lots of interesting uh, tricks that we play to try to get that to be as small as humanly possible. Uh, but at this at this point, there we are for sure still in a point where we can't just atomically flip a switch and say, hey, day, you know, at one, at one second you're operating on the east coast of the U.S. and the next second you're in Europe. Like we just we we're not able to do that just yet. You brought up the issue a little while ago, and I pushed it off about isolation. Now we have some fundamentals of the architecture. I'd like to drill down into how Salesforce implements isolation when tenants are using the same underlying storage systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, at, at root, it's really kind of as simple as I, as I said before. Um, of course, nothing, no, no, nothing's ever that simple, but a lot of the product is backed by a relational database. And in every table in that relational database, there's a column that says organization ID. And the organization ID is part of every single query that runs in the system. And it limits your access to a single tenant. So now, uh, now how do we make sure that someone doesn't just write a query that says that leaves off that or, you know, 
that um, that works across tenants in ways it shouldn't. And there's a whole wide variety of mechanisms. In the product, uh, the basic mechanism is, is we have um, a static checker that looks at every piece of, uh, of SQL that goes against the system, and it won't let you check it in if it doesn't have the appropriate uh, conditions in it. Um, so, so, you know, as far as the way that the product works, um, that's, that's sort of the first line of defense. The second line of defense is from an indexing perspective, um, the, the, the database tables are very tightly indexed on this organization ID, and they're very, very large. And so if you try to run a query that's properly um, limited and indexed to a single organization, it's going to have you know, perfectly good performance characteristics. If you leave that off, it's going to take hours to run. Uh, and so you'll you'll notice pretty quickly during development, like, hey, why is my why is my query not running? Even before you get to the point of the static checker. So um, you know, between that and a whole bunch of other uh, you know fail safes and mechanisms that we have in place, uh, that's sort of how we protect that level of isolation across the entire stack. Um, that's a fair amount of work to do, uh, but it does give up uh, give us these these benefits of the you know the the shared resource software level multi tenancy. I'm aware Salesforce offers different kind of containers in which customers can write their own apps that run against Salesforce APIs. I'm going to guess you don't just leave it up to the customer to add and organization ID equals us on all of their own queries. How, how do you protect the customer against either behaving badly or simply making a mistake? Yeah, so there's two varieties of that. The, the first, like the, the just accessing the wrong data for the wrong tenant, that's just not possible through the API at all. Like the API is in, in every respect um, only is single tenant at a time. Now it's possible, you know, if you fished somebody and you got their credentials and then you logged into the API as them, that's a different story, right? But from, from the perspective of legit usage of the system, uh, there's there's no way to go across those tenant boundaries with an API query or a UI request or anything like that. That um, you just can't do it. Now, where it gets a little trickier um, is in terms of resource utilization, uh, because you know we are fundamentally running on the same servers under the covers here. If tenant A comes in and issues a really expensive request, like say I want to crunch, you know, all these you know a billion lines of data and do a report on them. Uh, and then customer B comes in at the same time, say, and says, I want to do a relatively simple request, you know, show me a, a page. Um, it's possible that uh, there's going to be contention. Well, it's certain that there's going to be contention just for basic resources like memory and CPU. Now, most of the time, these are highly concurrent products that handle this really, really well. Um, and we monitor very closely, you know, the CPU load, CPU load and memory load and, and so forth, right? So we, we don't really generally get into uh, contention situations like that that we're not expecting. Uh, we also have plenty of limits in the product itself that prevent a single tenant from just gobbling up all the resources. Now, there's, there's, there's really interesting corner cases that you can get into. Uh, for example, with asynchronous work, um, we allow customers to, uh, to take uh, a bunch of work and say, I want this work to be done asynchronously via a message queue. Um, and if, if one, now this is where things get a little, a little dicey. Like if one customer in, in codes or, uh, puts in a whole bunch of messages and say, I want you to process the following 10,000 messages, right? And then another customer right after that says, oh, I just want you to process this one. Uh, there's really interesting questions about fairness there is like, well, you'd like to do things in, you know, first arrival order as a general principle. Uh, but in that, in, in something, in a case like that, should you be interleaving those requests for different tenants and say, okay, we'll do the first thousand from tenant A and then we'll take a little break and do the one from tenant B and so forth. Um, and this, you know, this kind of 
this kind of fairness computing can get really tricky. Uh, and it's one of those things that because we've opted for software level multi-tenancy, we don't have an easy out there. We have to actually answer all those questions ourselves. There have been a number of attacks on single servers in the last few years, the Rowhammer type things that enable, I've shown that there are ways to leak information in multi-user systems. Uh, is that part of the threat model for Salesforce's multi-tenant system? Yeah, oh, for sure. We, we have lots and lots of threat models because <laughs> we have lots of threats. You know, the principle we really try to rely on is defense in depth. And so, you know, barriers at, at a whole bunch of different levels to ensure that if a bad actor is attempting to do something, uh, A, they have a lot of hoops to jump through to get from one place to the next and, and across those, process, those boundaries of various sorts. And then B, if they are doing so, that they're leaving a trail that's notifying us that we're, we're detecting what, what's happening and getting in right away and responding and, and freezing them out. Um, so we, we do a lot of work internally to ensure that, and, you know, lots of exercises and things like that to ensure... Um, that we're you know, trying to think about things from every possible attack angle. I don't think that multi-tenancy from that perspective is inherently any riskier than a single-tenant architecture because you know, once, if, if an attacker is in a system and is, you know, is getting access to those resources, it's bad regardless of which way you spin it. So the fact that uh, it's one tenant or multiple, it's, it's immaterial at that point. You're talking about the tenant who wants to do an enormous amount of work could potentially create starvation for other tenants who are doing smaller amounts of work. I could see a couple of economic models. One is use as much resources as you want, we'll meter it, charge you for what you use. Another would be putting caps and say, well, we can't necessarily, we're not infinitely elastic, so we, we do need to put some kind of limits on what any one tenant can do for the fairness of all. Yep. How do you come down or do we, is there a, a single uh, right side of that? Or how, do, how does Salesforce come down on that? Yeah, there's not a single right side. Obviously both are good approaches and it depends in part on the business model of the software that you're trying to sell. Some kinds of software work really well in a pay as you go model and some don't. For a lot of the core product at Salesforce, like the um, you know the sales products and service products and things like that, um, it's it has traditionally been very much a uh, a limits model, right, rather than a pay as you go model, and that it, that primarily is because of the scaling approach we talked about, right? It's a relational database, and we scale it up until a point where we need to split it, and then we split it. Um, so it is not in, internally elastic in that way where we could just say, oh, sure, if you want to use 100 servers worth of CPU in the next hour, you, you can go for it and we'll just charge you for it. We just don't have that option uh, just architecturally um, in, the, in the core model. Now, there's plenty of other parts of Salesforce that do, <laughs> that, that do exactly that. Uh, Salesforce is a really big company and has a lot more than sales and service. Um, you know, there's marketing and there's commerce and there's collaboration and there's um, API connectivity and a whole bunch of other things, right? So that's going to vary uh, pretty widely from from one part of Salesforce to the next. Like for sure, I mean, as you know, in, in the Heroku world, um, it's very much the other model, right? Where we say, oh yeah, if you want to spin up more dinos, you should absolutely do that and you'll get a bill for it. So <laughs> as in every every good question in software engineering, the answer is it depends. You have talked about Salesforce running on first-party data centers. How would public cloud possibly change your answer to that? Uh, yeah, Salesforce runs in, in public cloud and first-party. We, uh, we have public cloud instances today uh, that run on uh, various different uh, public cloud providers. 
fundamentally, that has the potential to change the game, right? Um, but the what it really comes down to is is what is the um, what's the mode in which you're running the actual software on a you know for the individual tenants. So if you're if you're still running in a massively multi-tenant uh, fashion at the software level, uh, then your your ability to do that is a little bit more uh, more limited, right? You still have some of the same constraints. You still have to think about it the same way in terms of you know taking large groups and splitting them and migrating them and things like that. You know, given the same architecture that we have, it doesn't. Uh, inherently change any of those things. Where it does start to become really interesting and really transformative is it gives us a lot more options uh, in terms of, uh, I guess I would say, the, the sizing and the shaping of pools of tenants that live together in an instance. It allows you to be a lot more responsive with that and say, oh, based on the growth of an individual tenant, uh, we have a shorter lead time to you know, spin up a new set of infrastructure that allows us to handle just those requests. And again, as I said before, you know, Salesforce is lots of different architectures all in one. Um, and so there are certainly aspects of, uh, of the Salesforce architecture where that elasticity of public cloud is turning out to be extremely important, even even today, in our ability to, uh, say, serve really spiky workloads in the way that we handle commerce sites or the way that we handle marketing, um, you know, some of those more seasonal workloads. That's already turning out to be um, exceptionally beneficial. But to be clear, uh, if, if the if the question is what does Salesforce do in X, the answer is is both or or all of the above, right? Because we have just so many different parts of the product. Going to change the subject a bit here. What if this super really big important customer they have this one thing and they the way the system works now it doesn't quite do what they want. Could you just do this one off for them? Ah, that is an excellent question. Early on in the process of you know going down the road of software level multi tenancy. Uh, we we came to a fairly important realization. You really need uh, a certain level of isolation at the uh, at the conceptual level or, or independence, I guess maybe is a better word for it. In in terms of the way that the software, you know, behaves differently for different tenants. So we could very easily. Um, you know, long ago have said, oh, we've got a big deal on the line, but they really need this feature that to work differently than it works for everybody else. So would you mind just forking the system and having one version for them and one version for everyone else? And very early on, we, uh, we answered that type of request with a very emphatic no, uh, absolutely not. And there's a whole host of reasons why we don't want to get into that situation of forking our code. It makes life harder. It makes life harder for our engineering teams, right? Which, of course, then ultimately makes life harder for our customers because we'd be running instead of one service, like like several slightly different services. So that really kind of wrecks our ability to move quickly and innovate. And you know, if you think about software as a service in general, one of the big advantages that software as a service has over packaged software is just the amount of time that we spend on maintenance and patches and testing of old custom versions, right? So that's that's a whole lot of work that we don't want to have to do because we want to be putting that work into innovation and new features and so forth, right? Um, we also, uh, it's really important that we don't uh, get into a situation where a single customer needs to have that level of control either over the code or over the release schedule, right? Uh, because um, when we think about the, the way that we release updates to our software, if a single customer's needs can force us to stay say on uh, an older version for some arbitrary amount of time um, or dictate other parts of the schedule, that can cause a whole lot of complexity for us. Uh, and it's, so it's kind of almost as bad as a code fork, right? So really good multi-tenancy practices require us to keep our engineering pipeline 
um, totally independent of the, the needs of any one tenant. You know, we, we just absolutely need really clean lines there. And the way that we then uh, kind of work with that is since Salesforce is a platform, um, if there's custom things that an individual customer wants to do that are different from somebody else, that's absolutely fine. They can do that inside the software rather than changing the software, um, by which I mean that a lot of the software is metadata driven at two different levels. Uh, one level being there's just a lot of configuration options you can choose. Um, you know, you can turn functions on and off and you can uh, change the way things appear and you can change who has permissions to what and at lots of different levels. Um, but it's also um, a customizable uh, platform in terms of metadata at the user level because they can write code. They can uh, come in and say, oh, when you when you save the following object, run the following code and it'll change, um, you know, it'll change the behavior of the system just for that one tenant. So we really, um, because of that very strict approach to that, that was really what drove Salesforce down this path of uh, metadata being this sort of central driving force um, around uh, how we you know, how, how we empower customers to represent their own business without, you know, kind of throwing a wrench into the software delivery process for us. I'd like to start wrapping up. Is there any one lesson you learned about multi-tenancy where you wish you'd learned it a bit sooner than you had? One of the things that I, I think is very apparent to us now that, that wasn't necessarily apparent early on is the bi-directionality of scale. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, on the one hand, it's it's super important uh, for you to be able to scale up resources for uh, for a tenant, and and it's you know somewhat obvious why that would be the case, right? You you know you have a tenant that starts small and then they grow and they grow and they grow, and all of a sudden they need to do more complex things, and so that's you know what we were talking about before in terms of the ability to move tenants around. That's one way to deal with that. Uh, and there's other ways as well in terms of, you know, scalable storage and things like that. So, so that's one direction of scale, right? scaling up. But it's also really important, um, and, and this is kind of a core principle that we've thought about, to be able to scale down. Um, and, you know, so I, we were talking before about the cost structure of, of serving the architecture. Um, and so uh, if you think about it, in, a, in, a, in any kind of system, but a particular system like Salesforce, there is, um, there's going to be, there's eventually going to be lots and lots of small tenants. And, and why is that? Well, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons. For one thing, um, you know, the, the way that the sales cycle works for enterprise software is, you know, if you're a CTO for a big company, you don't just swipe your credit card and start paying for a fully loaded system somewhere, right? Um, there's kind of this complicated dance where, where the two sides spend months uh, working together, building customized demos, making sure that the systems are a really good fit, all that stuff. So that means because of the, the, the way that a sales funnel works, there's just going to be a lot of demo environments and there's going to be a lot of um, these sort of small tenants that they need to be extremely cheap and, uh, and resource efficient when you, spill the, uh, when you spin this up, especially considering that a whole lot of them are going to be idle most of the time, right? So if you think about um, that, that means overall our systems will be dominated by mostly idle tenants, right? Um, and so we need to take that into account when doing cost planning. And, and that really ultimately, that need to scale down to lots and lots and lots of small tenants um, is the real, is one of the real reasons why the software level multi-tenancy approach that Salesforce has taken really shines uh, because it is, it's our way of, uh, of saying, uh, yeah, new tenant creation is super, super cheap. It's a few rows in a database somewhere and you're off to the races. So that's a thing that I think if you're starting on a new project in terms of tenancy, a lot of times you might think to yourself, 
well, you know, the infrastructure level uh, tenancy is absolutely fine because we don't have to do any work for it. Um, we're just going to spin up separate VMs and containers for each tenant and we're off to the races. Um, and you really need to look at what the requirements of your process are going to be and ask yourself, like, am I, am I ultimately going to be dominated by lots and lots of small, you know, sandbox environments and demo environments and scratch organizations and things like that? And if so, how do I make sure that that's not the dominant uh, term in my cost equation? Um, and so that's, that is a thing that I'm glad we, so it's kind of the opposite of your question. I'm glad we got that one right very early on. And it really was sort of predicated the way that the system uh, ended up working from a business perspective over time. Um, and, uh, that's, that's the advice I, I guess I would generally give to someone who's thinking about this question. You could have an enormous number of old archived, defunct, or otherwise idle tenants, and they cost you Almost nothing is a few rows in a few database tables. Is, am I understanding that correctly? Yep. Do you have yep, any data good. on what proportion of uh, all tenants would fall into that close to zero cost category out of that uh, relative to active? No, I don't. Um, I don't have data on, on numbers. Um, you know, as far as the resource utilization of the system, obviously it's not much, right? Like the, the resource utilization of the system is dominated by active tenants because they're the ones who are doing things. It's, it's almost something that we don't really have to pay that much attention to in terms of uh, numbers. But if we had a different architecture, we would be paying a whole lot of attention to, you know, how many idle tenants are there and how much are they costing us and so forth. But the answer to us right now is it's, it's basically free, so. Okay, Ian, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Robert, thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking to you. For Codish, this has been Robert Blumen. I've been speaking with Ian Varley. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.